So, at 4 a.m. this morning, as I'm lying in bed thinking about all of this, the Lord impressed on me a small glimpse into his sovereign working. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, but unplanned except by God himself. The women's Bible study is working through Hebrews. There's a small group of men who are meeting one morning a week working through the book of Hebrews. Last week, Ben was in Genesis chapter 14 in Melchizedek and how God used Melchizedek and then he came to Hebrews chapter 7 talking about how Christ is the superior priest when comparing to Melchizedek. Next week, Ben will be preaching Genesis chapter 15 and working through the covenant that God made with Abram. This morning, we're going to get a glimpse, just a glimpse of that in Hebrews chapter 11 about Abram and Sarah and their faith and how they were commended. And then a few months ago, Ben gave me Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 as a small passage to begin to develop a sermon about. Lo and behold, it happened to be sandwiched in the middle of all of this. Every once in a while, you get a glimpse into how God's working, just small ways, and I think it's absolutely awesome. And I'm kind of excited to see what the result's going to be on this body from the focus in looking into Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Uh, it is rich as we begin to look. Okay, let's get started. Now, be honest with me. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word running? Tom, that's the word I have written right here in my notes. Ugh. <laughs> no way. Yeah, most of us tend to be that way most of the time. Why would we? And uh, if you work past that initial emotional response, and just think how racing comes through with many familiar events. Perhaps you had children or nieces or nephews who ran track events in the excitement around that. Uh, maybe small children, little toddlers with siblings or friends or cousins racing up and down the hallway forever. Uh, or perhaps you have somebody in your family who's gone through the effort of preparing for a half marathon and you begin to appreciate the work that goes into that. Some of us, maybe we get a little bit bigger picture and remember some of the great racers of past. Uh, Usain Bolt, back in 2009, broke the 100-meter record, 9 seconds in 0.58, or 9.58 seconds, 100 meters. I don't think most of us could get halfway through the 100 meters that fast. And then Chariots of Fire, Eric Lydell, participated in 1924 Olympic Games in Paris, and he was on schedule for a couple of events that were to occur on Sunday. 
and much to the disappointment of his fellow Scotsmen, he declined. And they were disgusted with him because they had a lot of high hopes built on winning a gold medal in those events. But what happened? He decided to run in a 400 meter, which was on Saturday, and he won. And all of a sudden, his fellow Scots countrymen loved him again. Running is also used as a metaphor in, in the Bible for a picture of our life with Christ. Paul used this technique uh, several times. Here's a couple of familiar ones. In his first letter to Corinth, and we read it, uh, uh, Bob read it for us at the beginning, run as if you are the only one who's going to win in your spiritual life. And by the way, he then expands, it goes to a different metaphor, that of boxing. Don't go around swinging wildly in the air. Swing as if you are going to land the punch. And that's the intent that we want to do. Then we jump over to his second letter to Timothy. At this point, Paul is getting ready. He knows death is coming. He, know he's gonna, he knows he's going to see his Savior. And what does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's not a pride moment. It's a moment of honest assessment as he looks forward to being at the feet of Jesus. He ran well. He ran well. One of the questions that kept coming to my mind about this is, what does it actually mean to run to Christ? What's actually meant by that? And I, was, I looked back over the life of Paul as he made these two assessments of running well in two of these letters. I began to look over Paul's life and what it means to run well. And there four things came to mind. One, in racing, when you're in an official race, you get a bib number. And you've all seen races and runners, they have a bib number pinned to their jersey. When did Paul receive his bib number? Somebody say Damascus? Yeah, on the road to Damascus, absolutely. At that point, en route, he met his Savior and began his new life in Christ. Second, Throughout the New Testament, we see that he gave himself to develop and grow godly character traits. For example, to love, to forgive, to sacrifice, to be holy as he is holy, and so many more. Third, he devoted himself to doing the will of God. That is, a proclaimer of the gospel to all. And secondly, to disciple believers. And then lastly, and this is a little reading between the lines on my part, I'll give you that. I think as he's working through these items, I think in time, as he uses them, as he is involved in the work, he is developing and growing his skills and abilities that God has given him. He's becoming wiser as a servant of Christ. I think that, in my mind, captures what it means to run the race. 
Now today we want to look more closely at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And the emphasis of the book of Hebrews is to make the case that Jesus Christ is superior to prophets, to angels, to Moses, to priests, to Melchizedek. He's superior to all. His qualifications are superior. He's a superior object of our faith in every way. Let's read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me pray real quick. Father, as we go into these couple of verses, as we begin to look at them a little more detailed, Father, we need your help. We need clarity of thought. And I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts. That in the end, we will become better racers. We become better running towards you. And uh, Father, we need your uh, ability to calm our hearts right now so that we can proceed to this passage. And we leave this in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are three key points that we want to look at. One, it's the assembly of co-runners. Two, it is our instructions. And then three, it's our goal. The first one, the co-runners. In chapter 12, in, in the very first phrase, it reads, if we could, let me go there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us. Those words in the, in the first line, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us. Is there a word? Did you catch the most important word? <laughs> and they're all. They're all right there. Therefore, surrounded, great cloud, witnesses, let us. And the first thing we need to do is we need to go back and we need to look at who these witnesses are, which we need to go back to chapter 11. And we're not going to read the chapter, but I've taken the liberty to summarize into five rough categories the individuals and the people that are summarized in chapter 11. First, there are ten individuals and with one couple listed by name with a brief highlight of their faith. And that's Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Moses and Rahab. Category two, there are eight individuals and groups listed of which was stated there's not enough time to go into details of these folks. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, Israelites, the descendants of Abraham. The third group, there are six individuals or groups discussed with no name mentioned, only the highlight of their life. 
delivered from mouths of lion, delivered uh, from the fury of the flames, escaped the sword, from weakness to strength, became powerful in battle. Women received back their dead. And then there's 11 groups listed. No names are given, but they paid the ultimate price for their, for their uh, faith. They were tortured, they were jeered, they were flogged, they were chained, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, killed by the sword, in hiding, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. Very interesting, this last group that are unnamed, that very next verse, verse 38, the author says, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. The world was not worthy of them. Quite a sampling from across the beginning of time. And then there's a cloud indicating there's an enormous number of people from before the time of Christ. Millions. Has to be millions. There's centuries. And even and they believed even though they did not see. Why are they being honored? Let's look at just a couple of these. Of the descendants of Abram and Sarah, and this is chapter 11, verse 13, all these people were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They had faith in a promise God delivered. They did not see that promise fulfilled. They did not see it, but they believed it. That is the promised Messiah. Of Moses, in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 11, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. The author of Hebrews Reference name of Christ. Now, Moses lived 14 centuries before the birth of Christ, with the fulfillment of that prophecy. He also lived seven centuries before Isaiah added to the prophecy record in our Bible. And yet, he was more concerned about not impacting the reputation of Christ. He would rather be disgraced himself than to disgrace his name. Now, Hebrews 11, 39 through 40 kind of sums this whole listing up of people. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All of these people were commended for their faith in a promise that was not delivered and was not going to be delivered until centuries later. And it was the Messiah. Messiah had come. And then together with us, they're made perfect. 
that is, those that proclaim the name of Jesus. A couple of observations as we look to wrap up this one in terms of challenge. All of these people were commended for their faith in God and his promises of coming Messiah regardless of their life status, their personal flaws or background. Some were wealthy, some poor, some well, some sick, some fleeing for their lives, some tortured, some killed, some with family struggles, and all were sinners, yet all were commended for their continued faith in God and his promises. So here we stand today, 2,000 years after Christ's work, his coming and his work, and I need to ask the question, regardless of the situation we may find ourselves, some good, some not so good, health challenges, uncertainty, struggles, do we respond with the same faith commitment as those that are in the cloud surrounding us? And secondly, I think we should find deep encouragement into a growing faith as we honor and learn from those who have gone before. God continues to work. All of those in the Hall of Fame of chapter 11 are being honored. And there's a result that impacts us just by the use of the word, therefore, let us. Now, we want to get into point number two, our racing instructions. And let's look at that middle phrase of these verses of chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. June 22nd of last year, I had an awesome opportunity as a grandpa to hike Franconia Notch with three of my grandsons and their dad. And our youngest grandson in that family is nine, is nine. And so we took this long hike up in Franconia Notch, and it was his coming of age hike to join his brothers in what we did. So we were hiking, we're going up and down. We went up Haystack, of course, went up Lincoln. We're coming down and we're starting to ascend uh, Lafayette. All of a sudden we hear click, click, click of, of uh, hiking sticks. And there's a gentleman running up Lafayette. Stood there kind of in envy, right? It's one of those moments, boy, I wish I could do that, but then quickly realized you can't. And we stood there and just watched as he got smaller and smaller and smaller as he continued to run up the mountain. So we resumed our pace to go up the mountain, and we get up the top, and we sat down for lunch, and there's a group of people up there, and we began to talk with them. Lo and behold, they were the support group for that runner. That runner had the goal of running all 48 4,000-footers in the state of New Hampshire in less than 80 hours consecutively. Yeah, yeah, it just... So later on, I sat down and did what you do with Google, 
who is this guy? Well, lo and behold, we found his notes, and Bill Tidd is his name, and he completed his race on June 23rd, accomplishing his goal. With only 5.2 hours of sleep, he covered 186 miles, 60,000 feet of elevation, in three days, five hours, three minutes, and 30 seconds, less than 78 hours total. In his blog, he detailed the level of training, planning, for example, the logistics, the ounces of fluid he needed to carry with him, the ounces of fluid he needed when he's going in between mountains, the number of calories he needed to consume, his eating schedule, his lighting, his coordination with support team. It was amazing. No detail was left out. Now, with that as a background, we're running a race. Let's look at some of our instructions. Hopefully they will help us run better. The first one, throw off everything that hinders, that encumbers us. For a runner perspective, think of excess weight, loads, unnecessary clothing, anything that holds the athlete back from less than optimum performance. For us, in our race, it may be activities possessions, habits, entertainment, all of which in of themselves are not sinful, but can take time and focus from the race we are in. Perhaps a downsizing is in order, reprioritizing activities, or focusing on those things that would serve to keep us moving ever faster in our race. Second action, throw off sin. Pretty easy to understand. We're constantly surrounded by it, we're constantly tempted by it, and we do yield. The image of the athlete, loose-fitting garments that entangles or trips, or garments that cling and impede ease of movement. For us, we, we don't need to do much explanation here, but it, we have a moment-to-moment -moment battle with sin. It needs to be constantly thrown off. Do not linger in it. And as a good pastor friend of mine used to say, deal harshly with your sin. Get rid of it. It's going to slow you down in your race. The third point is run with perseverance. Now, there's two aspects to this. There's passive endurance and active perseverance. Passive endurance, you run with patience. From experience, running a half marathon, there's a point in the backside of it after the halfway point where literally all you're doing is plotting, trying to keep forward motion, saying, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever do this? But you stay perseverant. You keep moving. You go. And then there's active perseverance. That is, you are pressing on as with, as with clenched teeth, you're determined to do this. That's running with perseverance. It requires our focus in all of our daily, God-assigned daily activities, studying his word, prayer, our responsibilities with our spouse, our children, our work, our service at church, with outreach to the community. Perseverance. And then the fourth is to run with our eyes fixed on the goal. 
and that's Jesus. Running to his feet and completing in a manner that is consistent with what he has done for us. And how awesome would it be when we're getting ready to go meet Jesus that we could say with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished well. Challenge, it almost speaks for itself. I want to encourage us in those times when you become, when you become discouraged, when things don't seem to be working well, when you're overwhelmed, I think we need to focus and refresh our minds and hearts on the work of Christ on the cross. Out of grace and love, we are forgiven. We have a stored relationship with our Father. We have the Holy Spirit resident within us. Reach out to Him. Focus on His Word. Reach out to a brother or sister in Christ for encouragement. At the end of the day, there has been a gift of grace freely given to us out of love. Let's foster the depth of our relationship with Jesus. And then the third point, the goal of our race. In the last of verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the originator and the perfecter of our faith. If you've named the Jesus as your Savior and he has forgiven you, he's the originator and he's the perfecter. Now, the more I read this section, it almost seems like there's another race introduced here, and that is Jesus' race. He had a goal. Notice, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he had a goal. There was gladness, calm delight set before him, but in the meanwhile, he had to endure. He had to bear the cross, and he had to deal with scorning, disregard, and disesteem the shame that was associated with what was happening to him on the cross. But the joy was he's now at the right hand of God the Father. And I think that captures two thoughts for us. One, he fulfilled the Father's will for his life. He fulfilled his role, what had been prophesied long ago to many of a Messiah coming. And then he accomplished his mission for us. That is, through love of each and every one of us, he died to take care of our sin problem once and for all and to restore that relationship. I think that's a joy. And I think that's a very fitting picture for us. Someday, we're going to be at the feet of Jesus, joining and singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Until we're there, there will be hard things to be done as we run. And yet God will bring joy, peace, and contentment during the work and the hard times. Think of the believers we listed in, chap in the fourth category in ch chapter 11. Those that were in hiding, that were being pursued, that did not have a good time. 
but they maintain, they maintain their faithfulness. Let's prioritize the joy that is set before us and develop the endurance that is needed for the hard work to move ever closer to what God desires. Okay. Let me bring, I want to bring this in for a landing here. The challenges we have seen, we should honor the millions of men and women of faith who were commended for their faith based on a promise of God to a level that motivates us to keep faithful. Never forget that great cloud of witness. If you see a giant white cloud in the sky, I think nothing more fitting than to think of the cloud of witnesses who are surrounding us. And let's honor them. Let's keep our commitment. With our faith in the work of Jesus on the cross that we can see in the past as we live redeemed, we should be ready, willing to commit to the hard work. There's hard things to be done and they're hard to do, but we should commit to it. Someday we'll be at the feet of Jesus who is sitting at the throne of God for an eternity. How can we do anything with a build, but build a building speed unencumbered to Jesus with our eyes fixed on him? To be sure, there is impediments that we have to overcome. We have sinful tendencies and we fail. Satan is on the prowl, seeking whomever he can devour. He's at work. Third, we live in a culture that is increasingly becoming unsettled and distracting at best and worst, anti-anything biblical. In fact, I think one of the best description of that culture is when Jonah is having an angry, on his part, dialogue with God, who is being compassionate, and God says to him, oh, you mean Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand. I can think of no better way to describe our culture today. What is right, they call wrong. What is wrong, they call right. They don't know the right hand from the left, just like this people, 120,000 souls in the city of Nineveh. I think that's a culture we're living in. And I think it calls for us with our tendencies, with Satan's work, the culture we live in, we need to finish great. We are members of God's family, all with the same goal. Let's pray, support, challenge, love on each other as we strive for the goal line to God's glory out of a heart of gratefulness for an awesome, wondrous work of Christ on our behalf. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. And I would ask that you would press this passage, your spirit would press this passage on our hearts, starting with mine more and more, Father, that we would seek to run better, and faster to you and be willing to do the work and pay the price in realizing that you will give the peace the contentment and the joy 
knowing that someday we will be at your feet. Thank you, Father, for this time. Amen.